This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source, like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, or your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess, it's about reclaiming your life. And that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. A licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. And go for Mike Slater in 3, 2, 1... You're listening to Mike Slater, part of the next generation of talk radio, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Slater Crusaders, America's greatest country in the world. Thanks for being here. Happy Saturday. Hope you have a great weekend. Uh, Last weekend, I watched Hacksaw Ridge. What's the deal? You got to go see it. Why did no one tell me? I'm mad at everyone. Why did no one tell me to go see it? The reason I didn't at first is because of Oscar bias, right? It got nominated for Best Picture for an Oscar. So I'm like, oh, pff, that's going to be terrible. <laughs> no way am I going to watch that. It was phenomenal. It was perfect. Have to go see it. Hacksaw Ridge. Go right now. It is, it is the most amazing story of conviction that I've ever heard in my life. And it was a miracle. There's, there's no doubt about it. There's no way to explain it. So if you have seen it, how do we raise our kids? To be like Desmond Doss. How do we raise our kids to be men and women of conviction and and unfathomable bravery like Mr. Desmond Doss? I'm serious. Go watch the movie tonight. What are you doing tonight? Watch it. Hacksaw Ridge. Got a bunch of feedback last week about uh, the segment we did about Borneo. I think we kicked off the show with it. Um, I want to share real, real quick... Um, and I got some more insight to, to share because people seem to have uh, gotten a lot out of it. So if you weren't here last week, William McDougall uh, was a psychologist in the early 1900s, and he wrote about Borneo. Borneo, and I'll be honest, if you told me to point to Borneo on a map, I'd have no idea. It's like somewhere in Africa. I have no clue. It's the third largest island in the world, and it's tucked right in there between the Philippines and Indonesia. In Asia, right? So he said if you, if you go to Borneo, on the coast are tribes. And they're peaceful, peaceful tribes, never fight anyone except for self-defense. And then even then they almost never win, but they're just very peaceful, nice people. And then you take a river and you go inland along the river. And the deeper you go, the more warlike the tribes become. So on the coast, very peaceful, a mile inland, still peaceful. And then another mile, it's like, oh, they look a little sketchier. And then you go another mile and they're pretty crazy. Then you go another mile, it's like full on, whoa, like who are the, like, crazy warlike tribe and you keep going it gets worse and worse right now the question is uh what tribe would you like to be a member of a coastal tribe or an inland tribe now i think if you asked most people today they would say the coastal tribe sounds nicer and safer 
because they're peaceful. Probably better people too. Yeah, nicer people. So here's what uh, McDougal said. He said, though it be supposed that the peaceful coast people would be found to be superior in moral qualities to their more warlike neighbors. The contrary is the case. In almost all respects, the advantage lies with the warlike tribes. Their houses are better built, larger and cleaner. Their domestic morality is superior. They're better uh, wives and, and husbands and parents. They're physically stronger. They're braver and physically and morally more active and in general more trustworthy. But above all, their social organization is firmer and more efficient because their respect for and obedience to their chiefs and their loyalty to their community are much greater. Each man identifies himself with the whole community and accepts and loyally performs the social duties laid upon him. Isn't that interesting? So the inland tribes, they're more warlike and people are like, oh, you don't want to be a part of that tribe. But not only are they more warlike, but they're, they're stronger, they're braver, they're cleaner, they're uh, more prosperous, they have more loyalty and respect, more trustworthy, right? That's, cra- like, that's obviously the tribe you want to be a part of. Now, I'm not going to go into it all again. You can check out the podcast last week, but that's the same divide we have in America today. This is Borneo 100 years ago and America today. We say all the time the number one division in our country is city versus country. But it's also coastal versus inland. <laughs> right? I mean, where, where are the bluest areas? On the coasts. And where are the reddest areas? Inland. The coastal areas are more progressive. The inland area is more traditional. And the progressives on the, on the coast, they'll say that the inland folk are, folk are backwards. And the, the, the coastal tribes in Borneo... We'll say that the inland folks are, oh, they're obsessed with war. They're more backwards, but that's not the full story. That division still exists today. Where's most of our military made up of? People on the coast or people from inland? Still today. There's something about that. If Borneo 100 years ago and America today have the exact same uh, situation going on there, there's something there. So to simplify it, I saw a meme online has four panels. The first panel is hard times create strong men. And it was a picture of the men of Iwo Jima raising the flag. Strong men create good times. And it was a picture of the World War II vats coming back, working hard. Good times create weak men. Coastal men. And it's a picture of uh, protesters whining about something or other. And then weak men create hard times. So hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. Weak men create hard times. And it goes back around. The hard times create the strong men, etc. So the question is, where are we on that cycle? And we're somewhere between good times create weak men and weak men create hard times or someone there, somewhere there. And the more parents I talk to, especially raising sons, but it doesn't really matter. The biggest fear that young parents have that I know is that they think times are too good, that they make too much money, too many comforts. Things are too easy for them and things are going to be too easy for their kids. So the question is, how do we raise... Let me, let me, let me say it like this. Is it possible to live in a time of luxury 
and still have your kids have the morals that can only be formed in times of difficulty. Let me say it again. Is it possible to live in a time of luxury, which we live in right now, and still have your your kids have the morals that are only formed in times of difficulty? Now, let me say one thing real quick, because you're probably thinking, Slater, I'm not living in luxury. I'm having difficult financial times. Easy for you to say, hotshot radio host, times of luxury. It's all relative. It's all relative. Um, I'm reading a book now about John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest men in American history. He was 50 years old before he ever ate a banana. Bananas never made it to America until he was 50. So if you've ever eaten a banana, then you're ahead of John D. Rockefeller. And he said, oh, Slater, banana, please give me a break. Banana, is that what your point is? Okay, uh, how about penicillin? Do you, want, like, do you want any other medical advancements? How about John D. Rockefeller never rode in a car, let alone an airplane? Have you ever been on an airplane? Right, so that's what I mean by times of luxury, right? Cell phones, John D. Rockefeller didn't have cell phones, right? So, so there's the things we have today that no one else has ever had in all of human history. So you may be on tough financial times, and I really do truly hate that for you. It's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about more big picture uh, times of luxury. Things are very easy in a lot of different ways for kids, but how do you, how do you have kids who still have the morals as if they were growing up in times of difficulty. Is it possible, first of all? And yes is my answer. It has to be. <laughs> I refuse to think that it's impossible. It has to be. But you have to want it and you have to work at it. I want to tell the story of, um, of Cortez next. But it all starts with Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu, Art of War, 500 BC. And he said, if you take a, a bunch of soldiers who are strong soldiers, he says, when you bring them to battle... You want to give them a a clear path to attack the enemy. And you want to make sure you have a clear path to retreat if necessary. A clear path to escape. But he said, if you take a bunch of soldiers who are wimps and from the city. I'm serious. He said that. He said, if you round up men from the marketplace. That was exactly what he said. Where are the marketplaces in the cities? So he says, if you round up a a bunch of pansies from the city. And you take them to battle. You got to make sure you give them a clear sight to attack, a clear path to attack the enemy. And you make sure there's no way and no place and no how that they can escape. He says, when you're dealing with weak men, you put them in in a hopeless position. You start from a place where there's no way to escape, nowhere to run. He calls it the death ground, a fatal position. He said, if you give weak men a way to escape, they will. They'll take it. But you put these men in a desperate situation, then it'll double or triple their spirit. With no place to escape, they'll get that edge and it'll cause them to fight like the devil. And it gives them the urgency to not pansy out. And I want to tell the story of Cortez next, which I think will make it even more clear. But Maybe the secret is to put our kids in situations where they have to dig deep, 
where they have to be pushed, where they need to overcome fears. Maybe the, maybe this, the, 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 the secret is to put kids in. I don't know exactly what this looks like, but I, I'm talking about more spirit. Put them in, a, in, a, in what seems to be a desperate situation so that they can dig deeper than they otherwise would. Because pampering kids can't possibly build strong men and women. I want to tell the story of Hernando Cortez next. This will make it all the more clear. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. Mike Slater. We'll continue in a moment on the Blaze Radio Network. Any home or business can quickly become infested with mold with the introduction of a water source like a roof or plumbing leak. When your home, your belongings, your business becomes damaged, it's not just about cleaning up the mess, it's about reclaiming your life. And that's why you need to call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. A licensed, fully insured, affordable, non-invasive solution to solving any water and mold problems. Our team of trained specialists are available with 24-7 emergency service. We will quickly evaluate your problem and give you a plan that will guarantee results. Water causes damage and mold can spread throughout your property in as little as 48 to 72 hours and can produce allergens and irritants that have the potential to cause serious health hazards. So don't waste time. Give us a call now. For any water or mold problems, call the Water and Mold Removal Hotline. Call 800-442-7043 today for a free estimate. That's 800-442-7043. 800-442-7043. Mike Slater. Hernando Cortez, Spanish guy, 1500. Uh, very long story short, he wanted to take over Mexico, but he was waiting for the right time. So he went to Cuba, which the Spaniards owned, and he sort of rose the ranks in Cuba. Uh, well, I don't think he was the number two guy, but pretty close to the top. The governor of Cuba, the number one guy, uh, sent him to Mexico to find out what was happening to all the other Spaniards he was sending there that have never come back, right? Like they kept sending people out to Mexico and it wasn't going well. So he's like, all right, Cortez, you go figure out what's up. So he went to Mexico with 500 men and he gets there and he says, all right, this is it. This is my chance to take over Mexico. We're going to take on the Aztecs. Now there's 500,000 Aztecs and 500 Spaniards. So they get to Mexico and he tells his plans to the men there and they're all say, they all say, uh, hmm, I don't think so. <laughs> like, I don't know. Uh, we got a bunch of gold already. It's pretty awful here in Mexico. A lot of diseases and stuff. And my wife and family, they're back in Cuba. So I think I'm just going to go back home. Right? So, so Cortez gives his men the choice. Uh, let's go fight or do we go back home? And pretty much all of them should go back home. So, the next night, he has someone loyal to him drill. They have 10 ships, 10 ships. He tells someone loyal to him to drill holes in all the ships and sink them. So he does. And the next morning, everyone wakes up and the ships are all at the bottom of the ocean. And, and Cortez pretends to be upset. He does the, oh, 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 oh come on. Who, who, oh, man. Now what are we going to do? What? 
What? Jeez. <laughs> so, doesn't take long before the men figure out that he's the guy who sank them. So they're going to cut his head off. And he's like, oh, 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 hold on, hold on, hold on. I did it. I admit it. I sunk the ships. But you have two choices. You can hang me. But there are tribes all over here that, that like me, but they hate you. And they're going to come here and they're going to kill us all. They're going to kill all of you if you don't have me as your leader. So you can kill me, but you're going to die. Or, or we can go and invade and kill the Aztecs and take all their gold. And he said, I promise you, I will lead you to victory. And because there are so few of us, the glory and the riches will be all the greater. Now, it turns out there was one ship that was still seaworthy. And he said, listen, any coward who's not up to the challenge, you can get back on that ship and sail back home to Cuba and go be a coward the rest of your life, or you can come with me. And all 500 men stayed with him and they invaded the Aztecs and they won. So what's the lesson? By the way, if you've ever seen Hunt for Red October, you've heard Sean Connery tell this story in Sean Connery fashion, which is about two sentences long. But here's the lesson. His men were too distracted by the easy way out. They were too distracted by the escape route. They had two paths. And one was very comfortable, the going back home path. So they didn't have any vision for the glory of the difficult path. They didn't have any desire to take the difficult path whatsoever because the easy path was right there. It was the ships. The ships were sitting right there. Like, why don't you get on and go back home? So because the, the easy path was so clear, no way would they even think about taking the dangerous one. It wasn't worth it. So what did Cortez do? He got rid of that escape route. He got rid of the distraction. If you're thinking, all right, Slater, that's fine, but I'm not uh, invading countries. So what do you, in everything we do, we, because everyone's risk adverse, almost everyone, for everything we do, we, we set up an escape hatch. We have a crutch. We have a fallback. But the thing is that fallback is preventing us from doing the right thing. We take the easy route and it's preventing us from taking the right route. It could be a comfortable job that's preventing you from doing what you really want to do. Right? You know what you really want to do, but you're not going to do it because you're like, ah, you know, I got my 401k or whatever, right? That's the easy path preventing you from taking the right one. This is when you hear stories sometimes like um, people will say, you know, getting fired from this one job was the best thing that ever happened to me because it lit some fire under your butt and put, him in a, put that person in a more desperate situation and they dug deeper than ever before and they ended up doing something uh, because they, they, the comfortable path wasn't there anymore. They got fired. Maybe your crutch is a comfortable relationship, right? You can go and you can date someone else, which is scary and difficult and all the rest. Or you can stay with the person you're with now, which is like, meh, I don't know, but it's easy. Another lie can be you have endless time in front of you, right? That can be your crutch. That can be your escape hatch. You're like, well, I don't need to do this because I'll do it later. I got, I got plenty of time to take care of this. 
right? I know I should do this thing, but eh, whatever. I'll do it later. No big deal. There's no urgency, right? 20 years go by and it's gone. There's no urgency to your action. Maybe, maybe the, the lie that you have endless time is your crutch. We like to think that the comforts we have in our life and the safety nets are a good thing, but it could be a curse. One of my favorite movie scenes is in Batman, the first Batman trilogy, the first of the trilogy, more recent than Christian Bale movies. And he's in the prison underground. I think it's the first one. He's in the prison underground and he climbs up the wall and he gets on a ledge and he's got to jump to make it to this other ledge to get out. And he ties a rope around his arms or around his waist or whatever. And he climbs up and he takes the jump from one ledge to the next and he misses and he, and he falls down and he it catches him and he does it over and over and over again. And he keeps missing. He can't make it. And finally he takes the rope off and he climbs to the top. No rope, no safety net, no harness, nothing to catch him if he misses. And he runs and he jumps and he makes it. Why? Why does he make it that time? Because he has to. This can be applied to a million things. So I'm a new dad. So that's just sort of where my head's at now. So for me, the question is, how can I raise my son, Jack, to have the security of knowing there's a safety net, but the urgency of thinking there's no safety net? And I think if I had a choice, I I think it's better for him to grow up thinking there's no safety net. What a tough balance to try and find. Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. This is Mike Slater. Part of the next generation of talk radio. On The Blaze Radio Network. Later on the Blaze Radio Network. I've got one more uh, story to share about raising kids in prosperous times. Um, again, hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. Good times create weak men. And then weak men create hard times. And we're somewhere in those last two phases. We live in, in prosperous times. We live in good times. And again, you may be having difficult financial times. Um, that's not quite what I'm talking about. We have, um, we certainly have a luxury, uh, luxuries that uh, people in all of human history and, and 90% of people around the world, 99% of people around the world have, have never, have no access to. So how do we, in a time of luxury, because it says good times create weak men. So how do we in good times create strong men? That's the big question here. So I came across a story of uh, Dostoevsky. I've heard of him before, Russian writer in the mid-1800s. So Tsar Nicholas I was the leader of Russia, and Dostoevsky got caught up in a, he was young, and he got caught, he's like, he was like 25 or something like that, and he got caught up in a political group that was against the czar. And one night, he and 23 other members of that group were arrested. And they were thrown in jail for eight months. Eight months. Never saw the light of day. Didn't even know why they were there. I mean, they kind of did, but they didn't know what the charges were or what the uh, penalty, the punishment would be. Eight months of that. So finally, 
they were all told that they were going to receive their sentence. No trial or anything, right? There's another example of how our, you know, we live in a time of luxury. We have a fair, speedy trial, right? Dostoevsky did not have that. That's something else that our kids need to appreciate, right? A fair, speedy, fair trial is a fairly new concept. Anyway, they were uh, being taken to the courthouse and they thought that their punishment would be a few months of manual labor and then the ordeal would be over. So they're getting closer to uh, somewhere. <laughs> they don't really know where they're going, but they're getting closer to somewhere and it turns out they were looking around and they're like, oh, looks like we're going to the center of the city. And then Dostoevsky noticed that the streets were lined with soldiers and thousands of spectators. Uh-oh. Are these people here for us? He looked up and he saw some scaffolding set up in the town square, the city square, with, with three posts. And to the side was a line of coffins, 24 of them. And this is when the men start freaking out. They're thinking, what the I can't believe they're going to execute us for this. How can that be? They were pulled out of the wagon, thrown up on the scaffold. And an officer said that they were all sentenced to death by firing squad for plotting to overthrow the czar. So Dostoevsky, in a resigned state, looks off in the distance and he saw the golden spire of a church and the sunlight was bouncing off of it. And he thought right there, he said, if I do not die, if I am not killed in this moment, he said, my life will suddenly seem endless, a whole eternity, each minute, a century. And he said, I will take account of everything that passes. I will not waste a second of life again. Someone put a hood on him, on all of them. A priest read them their last rites. They said goodbye to each other. The soldiers raised their rifles. And then a man on horseback came running towards them with an envelope. And at the last minute, the czar commuted their death sentence to four years of hard labor in Siberia. Now, most of the prisoners were destroyed by that event, by the whole spectacle of it. They were driven insane. They were paranoid. They never got control of their life ever again. It, it, it wrecked them. But for Dostoevsky, he took it as a rebirth, a second chance. This is what he said. He said, when I look back at the past and think of all the time I squandered in error and idleness, my heart bleeds. Life is a gift. Every minute could have been an eternity of happiness. If youth only knew how now my life will change. Now I will be reborn. And from that point forward, he went on to knock out a ton of books um, and, and be super successful. But, but here's what I find really interesting. Every day, he would bring himself back to that moment. Every day, he would bring himself back to that moment when his life was about to end. And he would look off uh, and, and see that the church the, with the golden arch, the steeple, golden arch, McDonald's, golden steeple uh, reflecting the sun and he remembered his pledge to never waste another moment. And when he felt like he was getting too complacent, when he felt like he was getting too comfortable 
and basking in too much luxury, making too much money, he would go to a casino and gamble all of his money away. Not for fun. He wouldn't go to the casino for fun. He'd go to the casino specifically for the purpose of leaving broke. Now, you may say, well, Slater, why didn't he give it all away? I don't know. (laughs) I don't know why he didn't give it away to charity. I don't know. But the point is, he took himself purposefully back to a state of desperation. He did that purposefully because that desperation is what gave him that spark of urgency and seriousness that he needed because that's what made him successful in the first place. So when he felt like he was getting too comfortable and making too much money, he was getting too soft, right? That's the good times create weak men. He saw himself in that phase of, of his life. And he's like, oh, I got to go back to the hard times. And he, and he gambled all of his money away. Maybe, I don't know why. I really don't know why, but maybe he gambled it away because if you give it away, then like that's noble, right? Like that's noble in and of itself. And maybe he would leave feeling good as opposed to feeling desperate. I don't, I really don't know why he didn't give it away, but the point is he made himself broke. He purposefully put himself in a desperate situation. I want to quote you from the great Robert Greene. He said, society is organized to make death invisible, to keep it several steps removed. And that distance right? The death seems like forever away. That distance may seem necessary for our comfort, but it comes with a terrible price. The illusion of limitless time and a consequent lack of seriousness about daily life. Isn't that true? Right? We don't want to deal with death because it's difficult. So we just push it away. We make it seem like it's forever away. And that makes us more comfortable, right? Because it's uncomfortable to think about how quickly it is, how quick life is, and how soon we're going to die. We don't like thinking about that. So we push it far away. We pretend it's forever away. That makes us more comfortable. But then the consequence of that is it makes us lose focus and it makes us lose urgency and it makes us feel like we'll live forever so we can just be lazy. And that's one of my problems is laziness. It's one of my, um, like my natural states. And I bring this up today because I want my son, Jack, I want him to know that life is short and precious and a gift and important. And I want him to have a sense of urgency to everything he does. So I guess the goal is to try and live life like you've had a near-death experience. But can't, like, like Dostoevsky did, but can you simulate that without really having one? Can you live life like you had a near-death experience without really having one? I don't know. Can you raise a son to live like he's had a near-death experience without him really having one? I, I, I don't know how to do that. Can you be as grateful for life and appreciative of every heartbeat that you have and every breath you take and every second you're alive unless you've had that taken away from you for a minute? I don't know. one 888 Mike Slater Show, The Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on The Blaze Radio Network. Part of the next generation of talk radio, this is Mike Slater. 
Justin Sanders. Thanks for being here. Thanks for putting up with me this hour <laughs> as I'm talking about um, raising kids, really. At least that's how I'm looking. I mean, you can take these stories and interpret them a million different ways based on what's going on in your life. Uh, but I got a five-month-old in the next room, so that's sort of where my head's at. Um, and just kids in, in general. So I'm reading a book about John D. Rockefeller, Titan. It's the Ron Chernow biography. And he grew up, Rockefeller did, second of six kids. His dad was a bigamist and a con man. He's a bigamist. He had a separate family and a total like swindler of the highest degree. Like he was almost never home because he had another family. And he would go town to town and he would sell magical elixirs that would cure every cancer and every ailment you have. Um, just the worst. And it was John D's mom who taught, that's what he, that's what they called him. John D. Uh, it was John D's mom who taught him to be thrifty and to save money. He came from a very low middle-class upbringing. Wasn't dirt poor. He was by today's standards, dirt poor, but, um, back that wasn't dirt poor, but certainly wasn't middle or upper class. So fast forward a few years, standard oil is taking off and John D has four kids. And they're very rich now. They're not the richest in the world yet, uh, but but pretty rich. Uh, he's got four young kids, and they all grew up and had their head about him. They had their head on straight. How did he do this? First, he had his kids. They, they never came to his office or his refineries until they were adults. And at home, dad created a make-believe economy. So you get two cents for killing every fly, Five cents for sharpening pencils, two cents a day for not eating candy, um, uh, a penny for every 10 weeds you pull, right? So there was John D. Rockefeller created purposefully a connection between work and money and money and work that a lot of people who grow up in money don't have. And he was afraid his kids wouldn't have. If there was just money everywhere, they wouldn't know that you have to work for the money. So he created a little makeshift mini economy inside the house. And he was thrifty. He, every package that came to the house, he would save the, the wrapping and the strings. Partly because that was in his nature, but also because he wanted his kids to be able to have that. Or he wanted his kids to see that and be thrifty themselves. And his wife was the same way. It took the both of them to do this. So John D. wanted his kids to have bicycles. But his wife said, no, only one. One for the four of them. And John D. Rockefeller was like, well, honey, we can afford four bicycles. It's not a problem. And his wife said, John, they need to learn to share. One bicycle for the four kids. So John D. was able to raise his kids to live a life of material comfort that wasn't much better than his. His daughters wore hand-me-down dresses. <laughs> richest man in the world. Now, at this point, he wasn't the richest, but he's pretty far up there. His daughters didn't need to wear hand-me-down dresses, but they did. I love this story, too. Is, um, one of his daughters was in college, Vassar, and wanted to buy something nice for one of her professors. So her and three other girls uh, pooled their money together, and they had $75. And they went to the store, and they wanted to buy this thing, and it was $100. But they only had 75. So they go to the store clerk and they're like, oh, listen, like we only have 75. Can we have it for 75? And the clerk's like, no. And they say, all right, well, can we have it on credit? We're good for it, I promise. We'll go get the money. And he's like, no, I can't, I can't trust you girls for 25 bucks. And he goes, well, what does it take? What will it take for us to, to walk out of here with, for $75? And the guy's like, well, I need someone to back up, back you up. 
like for credit. I'll give you, I'll give you this on credit, but I need someone, I need someone to back this up. And they're like, who? And the guy's like, I don't know. Do you, a businessman, give me some, do you know any businessmen who can, who can say that you're good for it? And John D. Rockefeller's daughter goes, oh, my dad's a businessman. And the store clerk goes, well, who's your dad? And she goes, uh, uh, John D. Rockefeller. And the store clerk's like, what? Yes, here, go take it. You're good. So the daughter truly, genuinely had no like awareness of that. It was, she wasn't like, my dad's John D. Rockefeller, right? It was very much like, oh, 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 my dad's a businessman. He owns a business. Like she <laughs> couldn't put it together that it was standard oil, right? Like she just had this humility about her and, and it was all purposeful from uh, her dad. So a few lessons, it's, and it's, it's interesting. Um, you, we think that more money will solve all your problems and, and make life easier for your kids. Maybe, but in some ways, maybe not. Because there are wealthy parents who wish their kids didn't have the problems that can come from that life. And to bring it all back to the top of this hour, is it, is it better to be a member of the Borneo tribe on the coast or further inland along the river? one 888 Slater Radio on Twitter. All right, I want to come back and talk about Trump and the tax return story from this week with Rachel Maddow. When will people see that he does all of this on purpose? <laughs> all of it. He has this all planned out. He leaves nothing to chance. If you've been listening to this show for the last about two years, I don't think it has been two years since we've been really kind of taking this approach with Trump, it was a little bit into the campaign. So maybe we'll go two years. He does all this on purpose. And the sooner you realize that he does, the more all of it makes sense. And if, and if you have been listening the last two years, I know that when you heard about this story, when you heard the whole Rachel Maddow tax return thing, I know that you said, oh, he definitely leaked those himself. <laughs> Denny Depp, there's no question he did. All right, we'll break all that down. Coming up next, Mike Slater. So the Blaze Radio Network. Spread the word. You're listening to Mike Slater on the Blaze Radio Network.